Podcast. I'm your host, Nick Jacomis, and today I'm speaking with Dr. Rusty Gage. Professor Gage is a professor at the Laboratory of Genetics at the Salk Institute near San Diego, California, and his lab studies how genes and environment interact in order to influence the process of brain development. In particular, his lab has spent many years studying the phenomenon of neurogenesis and adult neurogenesis, the process by which new neurons are born and integrate into the existing circuitry of the adult brain. For a long time, this was thought to be something that didn't happen. Uh, for many years, up until probably the mid-20th century or so, people thought that new neurons were born you know, prenatally in very, very early brain development, and then it stopped. And in adults, you did not get new neurons being born. But over the years, that was shown not to be the case. In fact, neurogenesis can occur well into adulthood and throughout most of the life of an animal. And Professor Gage's lab has been very important for understanding all of the molecular and cellular details of that process. So we talked about adult neurogenesis. How does it happen? What types of things stimulate it to happen? Everything from exercise to intermittent fasting to different aspects of how animals interact with their environment, seeking novel experiences, learning new things. We talked about some of the molecular pathways that in influence and trigger neurogenesis in the adult mammalian brain and you know all of the things that are involved and related to adult neurogenesis what are these new neurons doing in the adult brain how do they work uh, what happens if this process is disrupted so if you're interested in the phenomenon of adult neurogenesis how new, new neurons can be born throughout the lifespan this will be a really interesting episode for you as always, if you enjoy the content I'm producing on the Mind and Matter podcast, please like, share, and subscribe. Don't forget to check out the links in the episode description for how you can support the podcast further, including the Mind and Matter Substack at mindandmatter.substack.com. Hey everyone, I want to take a minute to tell you about a product I use called Everyday Dose. They have created excellent coffee and matcha products with functional mushrooms and other supplements and less caffeine than traditional coffee or matcha products. I actually reached out to them because I've been using their product for about a year or so and listeners often ask me about my daily and weekly diet habits. They make a really good mushroom-based coffee alternative. It contains myconutrients with antioxidant and anti-inflammatory properties as well as collagen protein to help support healthier skin, nails, hair, and joints and the amino acid L-theanine from tea leaves. Each cup has just about 39 milligrams of caffeine. That helps eliminate the caffeine crash that can come if you drink regular coffee, which has much higher caffeine levels. And they use a unique cold extraction process that results in lower acidity than normal coffee. And the caffeine microdose makes it suitable even for someone who doesn't normally drink coffee. This mushroom-based product is made using a double extraction from 100% mushroom fruiting bodies like lion's mane and chaga to maximize the extraction of micronutrients like beta-glucans, tritrate terpenes, and sterols. Other brands don't typically do this, making Everyday Dose one of the highest quality products of its kind. It's gluten, dairy, and nut-free. There's no added sugar. It's paleo and keto-friendly and made with kosher ingredients. There are no grains or fillers, and it is lab-tested to ensure quality. I really like the taste of Everyday Dose compared to black coffee and other mushroom coffees, and they have a mushroom matcha product loaded with functional mushrooms and collagen proteins, so if you like green tea matcha, you'll probably like that product too. If you're interested in a healthy coffee alternative, I highly recommend giving Everyday Dose a try. Check out the link in the episode description or visit everydaydose.com to learn more. If you go there, you can find special offers that they have for getting a free frother and free travel pack of on-the-go doses with your purchase. This episode is supported in part by Athletic Greens. Their main product, AG1, is a comprehensive and convenient daily nutrition product containing 75 vitamins, minerals, and whole food sourced ingredients with less than one gram of sugar per serving, no nasty chemicals or artificial anything. It's gluten 
gluten and dairy free and compatible with paleo, vegan, vegetarian, and ketogenic diets. AG1 is a quick and convenient way to supplement your diet to help ensure your body is getting the nutrients it needs. It comes in powder form and you can mix it in water and drink it, or you can put it into a smoothie or a shake or something like that. I mix it into water and drink it with the first meal of each day, and it's super convenient. If you go to athleticgreens.com slash mind and matter, Athletic Greens will give you a free one-year supply of vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. Their vitamin D product comes in tincture form, so you just take one drop each day. A large fraction of the population is actually vitamin D deficient, especially in winter months when we get less sun exposure. And vitamin D is super important for the proper function of the immune system and for a variety of other things. And there's even evidence indicating that vitamin D deficiency is correlated with more severe cases of COVID-19 in those who get infected. Every time I go into the doctor each year for a checkup, I'm always told that vitamin D deficiency is very common and I should be supplementing on a daily basis. So visit athleticgreens.com slash mindedmatter or click the link in the episode description. You'll get a free one-year supply of vitamin D with your first purchase. And with that, here's my conversation with Dr. Rusty Gage. does um yeah no i'm I'm, my name is rusty gage i'm uh at the salk institute and in the laboratory of genetics uh for the last five years i've also been president of the salk but that is uh coming to an end on april 21st of this year so i'll go back full-time to the lab um work on uh neurobiologist so i'm interested in generally um, sort of lifespan of neurons and how they interact with uh, their environment and what, what influences their, their development from a stem cell through to a full, fully functioning neuron. Uh, More recently, as a result of the sort of focusing of my attention, I've been concentrating on the general concept of, of aging And um, we use a variety of model systems to study this. Um, it, we, about well, 10, 15 years ago, we started working with uh, induced pluripotent cells. But um, the problem with that is you race the epigenetic profile of the, um, of the cells. So they go back into an infant state. So trying to study aging with, iPS cells is a struggle. So we use a technology where we can directly program fibroblasts into neurons. And when you do that, you retain the epigenetic profile of the person from whom the fibroblast retained. So the fate of the cells is actually changed from a fibroblast to a neuron, but the developmental state of the cell or its age, its chronological age is, uh, is consistent and remains the same. And that's afforded us a lot of opportunities to to look at that and, and focus a lot of attention on, on Alzheimer's disease, but not you know, regular aging, but also Alzheimer's disease and uh, and other neurodegenerative diseases like Parkinson's disease. Um, but aging is sort of the major, a major thrust. We do do, um, <clears throat> and, and most of that's in a monolayer setting. Uh, but we do mixed layers of mix, mix and matching cells together, but also use organoids and um, have a variety of 
methods that you can drill down on if you wish about how we approach the organoid um, the organoid technology to sort of uh, encourage its generalizability. Mm-hmm. Pause there and let you jump in. Yeah, why don't we just start with you know when we think about aging and and cell fate and things at the cellular level for the nervous system, you know, one of the things that's fairly unique about neurons compared to many, many other cell types in our body is they have to essentially last almost a lifetime, right? So most neurons in the brain don't divide. And so can you speak a little bit about, you know, why that is at a very basic level? And, and then we'll kind of get into some of the questions around neurogenesis. Yeah. Um, well, Whys are all often hard. I, you fall back on evolution when you talk about why things are selected for because of their survival value. And so it's not so much a why as a consequence of the environment that you found yourself in. That's a you know, sort of a general statement to avoid you know, the why question. But um, so what's crucial for neurons, of course, is circuitry and connectivity. And you know, every neuron or many neurons have as many as a thousand or 5,000 connections to them. And so um, if neurons were undergoing cell division, this would be a breakage of the connections between them. So one could argue that the nervous system has evolved to a non-dividing state so that circuits could be maintained and memories in particular can be sustained for long periods of time. A a good question is, you know, what are the molecular mechanisms surrounding that transition that occurs between a a neural progenitor cell, which has the potential for self-renewal and generation of progeny, and a neuron? And we are particularly interested in that transition point. and a, a sort of very exciting area of research that's emerged out of this recently, or starting to catch on a little bit, um, is that when cells are undergoing cell division, they're in a state um, where they use the same sort of energy source that cancer cells use and many other dividing cells. So they use glycolysis. Mm. And we showed heat nine years ago, that in iPS cells, when they transition from a dividing neuroprogenitor cell using lots of glycolysis, and I can go into why that would be, they shift into oxidative phosphorylation over a week period of time when they stop dividing. The advantage of oxidative phosphorylation is that you have, you generate a lot more ATP. And for neurons, we think that's sort of the key to their unique function is that they have so many synapses, have so much, so many activities that they can do in a static state that they need a lot of ready ATP to do all those things. The advantage of glycolysis though, is that glycolysis can, has other shunting pathways where they don't make as much ATP, but they can make nucleotides, amino acids, lipids. So they're, they're involved in generating the bulk that would be necessary for a dividing cell. 
<laughs> so that's a, a molec- that molecular distinction and pathways is an area we're spending a lot of time in right now. I see. So, so as uh, as you go from a stem cell to a mature neuron, in this case, the sort of energetic and metabolic requirements of the cell change um, when it's dividing. I see. And that's presumably because, you know, when a cell is dividing, you know, it's almost analogous to uh, a baby versus an adult, right? When a baby's growing, it just has different energy and nutritional requirements because it's, it's growing and then eventually it stops growing and it needs to sort of sit in that state, so to speak, and, and do what it does. Yeah. And, and generate ATP to do lots of things that it wants to do. You know, the other analogy that we use is, um, is this, this energy state of the stem cell or the neuroprogenitor cell is very much like cancer. So a cancer cell is in the same state where it needs mm. lots of uh, bulk to renew itself, to divide, to make more, more constituents. So there, we make that analogy quite a bit. Um, I don't know if we're going to go in this direction or not, but I, I can riff off of that for a bit. Yeah. Before we circle back to that, why don't we just talk about neurogenesis, you know, very broadly speaking. So sure. could you just define for people what neurogenesis is and how the rate of neurogenesis changes from prenatal to postnatal development to maturity in general? Yeah, I, I think you're talking about um, adult neurogenesis, not not in vitro neurogenesis. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Like in an organism. Right. In an organism, uh, neurogenesis, as I like to uh, encourage people is not a, an event. It's a process mm-hmm. where cells um, and in the central nervous system, there are two locations where this occurs in the ma- in mammals. One is in the hippocampus and one is in the subventricular zone. Um, the There are these niches that are in very specific locations and they're quite near blood vessels. And they get in their, in the dividing state, they get a lot of nurturement from the vasculature. So we've called this the vascular niche for stem cells. And there are these niches that exist in other body areas too, as well. So they can either be, um, in a proliferative state where they're making copies of themselves. And as a stem cell, they can either self renew, that means give rise to a copy of themselves that are still pluripotent or multipotent at that stage. Um, they can go into a quiescent state or a, a, where they are silent for a period of time. Um, and the progeny of a stem cell can also give rise to specific lineages so that you can become a glial progenitor cell or a neural progenitor cell. And these cells then Um, can divide as a committed lineage-restricted cell and give rise to themselves. And then from then, they they generally give rise to one additional cell that will differentiate into a fully mature cell. And then the the progeny um, can either continue to divide as cell or, again, go quiescent for a period of time. What's crucial about this phase where the cell is lineagely committed to becoming a mature neuron is there's as many interesting things going on while they're maturing as what happens when the cell is fully mature. And so a lot is known about this in the hippocampus where these cells are in the region of the hippocampus called the dentate gyrus. And they have a period of time 
during their commitment to becoming a neuron where they're what's called hyperexcitables. They, uh, they fire action potentials at lower thresholds than mature cells. And this is in part because all the inhibition has not come, all the inhibitory contacts haven't come to the mm. cell yet. So they have this, they're adding a, a sort of a new dimension or an additional dimension to the cells by virtue of the fact that they respond in a hyperexcitable state. They actually can retain firing for uh, a longer period of time. Again, we think in part because of this lack of inhibition that's coming in. They have generally four or five different inhibitory neurons that make contact with them ultimately, but that, that it takes some time for that to come in. So um, it, there's even an earlier phase where, <laughs> this is amazing, where the cells will respond to GABA, which is an inhibitory transmitter, as an excitatory transmitter. So it gets depolarized to GABA. Hmm. So here you have this cell on its way to becoming a neuron, and it's it's responding to inhibition by being more excited. And this obviously contributes to their hyperexcitability, because even the GABA that's supposed to be silencing is causing excitability. And then they mature further. They begin responding in, inhibitorily to, to GABA, but there's there's not enough GABA there. So you have this extended period of time where they're hyperexcitable. In rodents, this period is three to four weeks. So from the time that their last division to their fully mature is about eight weeks in the rodent brain. But in primate and humans, this period is extended dramatically. So it's, I think the last paper last year in nature uh, suggested it was more than six months, but it had been published in primates that they're, they're out to six months or so, but in humans, it may be even longer. So that means that this period of time where they're, they're contributing their hyperexcitability to the, to the circuitry is extended. Once they become mature neurons, then they're really not different from the rest of their peers. Other than the fact that they have now acquired new information during their maturation that they can contribute to the circuit. So they'll have um, there's sort of interesting studies that have shown that if you put an animal into an, uh, a novel environment, let's say, and then labeled the cells that are born during that period of time with some uh, proliferative dye, and then you take them out, let them mature fully, and then bring them back either to the same environment or a different environment, if you put them in the same environment, then those cells that were born during that time are more likely to respond by expressing an early early immediate gene like ARC or FOSS than would be other cells. So it's as if they're time-stamped with some mm. information in them about what happened during that critical period of maturation. I don't know if that's too complicated, but it's yeah. a, a fun fact. Yeah, so so a new neuron is born, it starts to integrate into um, pre-existing circuitry that's already in the brain, but if an animal is in a novel environment while that's happening, the new neurons seem to be specifically related to the novelty there, the newness of that environment. That's right. That's that's what the evidence supports, yeah. And you mentioned that this is only happening in a couple spots in the brain. Uh, which spots are those again, and is this because 
do we think that there might be other spots where it's happening or do they require a very specific kind of nourishment from blood vessels? And there really only are a couple spots in the brain that can really uh, harbor these stem cells. You know, there are, there are plenty of, you know, I look back on it. There are lots of places that could be sites of neurogenesis. Um, there is evidence that there's neurogenesis in the hypothalamus. Um, there is some evidence that in humans, the so the second place where it occurs is in the ventricles or lateral ventricles, and they migrate out to the olfactory bulb in lower animals, which have large olfactory bulbs. So there's a contribution, and there they go through the same sort of period where they're hyperexcitable there, and they contribute to olfactory memories and that sort of thing. Um, but there is evidence that there's some sort of neurogenesis occurring around the, the fourth ventricle in the hypothalamus. And then there was this sort of surprising study where there was neurogenesis being reported in the, in the striatum itself. And I think that they're migrating from the ventricle instead of the olfactory bulb, they go to the striatum. But yeah, there is also in the cerebellum, postnatally up for the first couple of weeks in mice, you see that there's neurogenesis going there, but that pretty much stops in the cerebellum. Um, but is, you know, is the main spot for adult neurogenesis, that's the hippocampus? Yeah. And in a particular region of the hippocampus called the dentate gyrus. So that's the first site. So if you think of a circuitry where the hippocampus is receiving inputs from the cortex, so it's being alerted or brought information in from the cortex, the first place that it goes is to the branches of the dentate granular neurons. And there, just in the inner base of those is a highly vascularized area. And that's where the neural progenitor cells and stem cells of the dentate gyrus occur. And that's, um, that sort of formation is pretty, is unique to the nervous system, despite the fact there have been observations of occurring. You know, I think there's actually some evidence for neurogenesis in the piriform cortex, but they never fully mature. I think they get to the state of, a, of an immature neuron, but then they, I guess they die. Mm-hmm. I haven't studied, I haven't studied that. I'm just sort of recalling to some published literature. And so, you know, the sort of biology 101 view of the hippocampus is that it's it's very important for memory, generally speaking. Do stem cell do these stem cells that turn into neurons even into adulthood are they mostly involved in memory formation and that type of thing or or what are the sort of main functions they tend to take on yeah the the current um way of describing this is that they are involved in what's called uh pattern separation and what i mean by this it's a terminology used in computer logic, but you have um, information coming into the hippocampus and to the dentate gyrus from the cortex. The dentate is very, very densely layered. It's very packed in. And what the role of the young cells in their hyperexcitable state is they send their processes out to the inhibitory neurons in in the hilus and activate an inhibition. And because they're so excitable, they inhibit a lot of the cells in the dentate in a a non-random way. 
But at the same time, they're sending out a process that goes to this second relay station of the hippocampus called the CA3. Now, what the data show for many people have, have shown this is that by ablating or getting rid of these young neurons at critical times, if you present, um, and this is done by Craig Stark in humans, actually, was uh, he's both computational and a human imaging person. And what he has shown is that um, if you put people in an fMRI machine and then present them with images, okay? So you're flashing a lot of, you know, a, let's say a, um, an automobile, um, a flower, car, I mean, you know, just different objects, okay? Then those are the those are the, the first phase. You're just looking at it. Then he presents to you another object that is either exactly the same as the one that you saw or slightly different. And what what happens with age and disease settings that he's looked at is that you lose the ability to make the distinction between closely related objects. So um, so if, if somebody says, um, they bring you this flower, it's the same colors of flowers, but it's sort of twisted in some way, angled in some way. If you have good neurogenesis, you'd be able to see that as the same flower, but it's just oriented in a different way. Whereas, in, and then you you can do these things with the mouse, where you um, they have a touch screen, and you'll show um, an, uh, two images and ask whether or not they are in the same location or the same shape, and the closer they are to one another, the more difficult it is. For the animal to distinguish between them, but but they can make these distinctions between uh, highly similar objects. But then, with if you delete neurogenesis, you lose that ability to do the finer points. If things are very different from each other, they can see the difference very easily. But it's really working it on on this fine distinction. And people have done this not with visual objects, not only with visual objects, but with spatial relate spatial locations with emotions. So if emotional things are highly charged or have a, have a, a big experience or have a big impact, they're easily distinguished from each other. But if you ha- don't have neurogenesis, you have a harder time uh, making the distinction. You know, it, it's um, people for, 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 um, from the clinical side, people have thought about uh, PTSD, where you have somebody that's had a very bad experience and is associated with um, some traumatic event, maybe a gunshot or something like that. People that have this um, PTSD will hear a sound or hear a something that sounds like that other one, but they and they can't distinguish it well they will react as if they're experiencing again. 
Mm. So it'd be and, like if you hear a firework go off yeah. and you have traumatic experience from war, you don't distinguish the 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 thud from the fireworks from the battlefield that you used to be exactly. in. Exactly. And so people, physicians have used this. And, and so um, adult neurogenesis has been linked to depression. And that's where this whole hypothesis about serotonin reuptake inhibitors were being good for that because serotonin reuptake inhibitors increase neurogenesis over time through a, a particular serotonin receptor. So that's, that's one practical application of it. But it's also true that it's linked to, um, say, aging and Alzheimer's disease when you're um, – your inability to recognize faces as being folks that you actually know, you know, and it get progressively worse. Um, you're you've lost the ability, let's say, to retain a. If you get distracted, you, you lose the context in which you were having an interaction previously. So you start over again as if it was a novel event. So it has it has implications, um, but the general idea people the way generally people talk about it is this idea of pattern separation, being able to distri- mm-hmm. distinguish between closely related objects, emotions, spaces. I see. Time. Yeah. So you you show an animal, you know, a blue car and a red flower. Those are very different. They're going to have very distinct patterns. It's very easy to do that. You don't sort of need new neurons to do that. But when you show them a blue car and then a blue car again, that's just sort of turned in a different way. Those two patterns are more similar and harder to separate. And so a lot of these newly born neurons in the adult help that sort of fine scale pattern separation. That's, that is exactly right. Well said. Um, And, uh, and so there's a lot of, the work right now is is on that circuitry, how that can be translated. Most of it's electrophysiology and behavior, but now people are doing single cell sequencing to try to understand the molecular mechanisms that may underlie what what are those cells actually doing? What is the event? And uh, it's so it's a very exciting time actually right now because the tools are there to do this. Um, and yeah. Good. So, uh, I, I'm, glad, I'm glad you got that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, um, I mean, this is fascinating. So, new neurons are coming into these specific parts of the brain, in particular, the hippocampus, the dentate gyrus of the hippocampus is an important area where this happens. Are these newly born neurons in the adult, are they replacing neurons that have died? Or does the brain keep sort of packing in more and more neurons throughout the lifespan? Yeah, you got to, they, they keep adding new neurons. But on the other hand, it's not it, it's maybe one to two percent uh, of the cells are proliferating at, at any one time. So, as much as we can determine in the rodent, there is an, a growing. So, if you look at an early developing rodent, for example, they have a very thin layer of dentate gyrus. So, it you can see it expanding over the first three months, where there's lots and lots of proliferation occurring. That's still building up new memories, building up new experiences about your environment. Then as you mature, you're not going to see as many novel things in in your life anymore. So so the need for vast amounts of neurogenesis is, is sort of left. However, what is quite remarkable is that if you expose an animal to 
multiple complex environments. So you turn, turn them into new environments every day for um, months. Their hippocampal will grow even further after an adult. You can actually measure the volumetric mm-hmm. and the number of neurons growing. Um, so it's a process. And then the other feature of what what's manipulative. So it's, it, it's as if, so normally what would happen in a, if somebody were in a, put an animal in an isolation cage, you have very little neurogenesis, it almost stops if you put the animals in a, a cage with no new experiences. But if you move them into a rich experience, then they start dividing again. And so you can, you can, you can actually manipulate this back and forth by the amount of exposure that they have mm. in, their, in their environment. And people are working and have published on the underlying molecular mechanisms that gets that going. Um, and it's circulating peptides are important uh, as, w- as well as neuronal activity. The other big feature that affects neurogenesis is physical exercise. So just movement alone, independently of the environment with it, the movement comes. And from an ethological perspective or evolutionary perspective, you could argue that movement is indicative of in of coming in contact with new things. Mm. So that will stimulate proliferation and, and the mechanisms underlying that blood derived uh, IGF one stimulation is, has been worked out by a variety of people, but also it turns out that serotonin input to the hippocampus is also, you know, involved in that activity dependent increase in neurogenesis. So, so you have the flip side, you've got, you know, lack of activity, restrictions, you know, anesthesia, you know, just no movement and the lack of, of, of visual exposure to novelty are two of the biggest uh, influences on neurogenesis, both positively and negatively. So lack of exercise versus exercise, environmental enrichment versus lack of environmental enrichment. People are doing all kinds of things too, like, um, trying different sensory stimuli. Is it just visual stimulus is important or can you have an impact? One would argue it should be true for olfactory stimuli too, because you're making distinctions between these olfactory, mm-hmm. but that might be for, for animals that might be going on in the, in the, um, in the olfactory bulb. Um, but as animals became bipedal, their dependence on olfaction became, has become less. So, I mean, it's almost lethal to ablate olfactory bulbs and rodents. And I mean, think of horses and dogs and how dependent they are on olfaction. Mm-hmm. You know, we are dependent. It's nice, but it's not a absolute criteria. Yeah. So, so the amount of neurogenesis in different parts of the brain probably varies from animal to animal, depending on its, you know, its, it's needs. biology. Yeah. It's biology. Yeah. And so it sounds like, you know, you said, so in terms of thinking about like the things that trigger neurogenesis, it sounds like some of it comes from just patterns of activity in the brain itself, the way that neurons are firing in the hippocampus and elsewhere. Some of it comes from things that are circulating in the bloodstream and and those things change as a function of, you know, novel environments and and movement and exercise and things. What are some of the key, what are some examples of the, the sort of key molecular triggers that promote the differentiation of these stem cells into mature neurons. Yeah, no, actually it goes back to my original uh, discussion that we were having. Um, So we do, we do know, I'll I'll take it this way. We do know, for example, that the serotonin activation uh, from the serotonin 
is the serotonin neurons of the RAFA fire when the animals are in an active setting, that those synapse onto the neuroprogenitor cells and they activate um, through serotonin receptor, the activation of uh, genes involved in proliferation, you know, CDKs and things of that nature. So there is a, a biological part of it. There's also, uh, as I said, IGF-1 can get through the blood-brain barrier to stimulate um, neuroprogenitor cells that are near the blood-brain vessels. It's interesting, their location is is key to a large extent because they're they're getting access to the vasculature during those times. And what is also happening is that there's an increase in angiogenesis. So there's actually increasing of um, blood vessels, small, small auxiliary vessels are branching out in these cases where you have um, a proliferation or when you have uh, running experiences going on, increased. There isn't as much, I think, on the environmental enrichment as I, I'm trying to recall whether or not people have shown increase in vascularization with um, enrichment. I guess it depends on the size, the enrichment, and how much move. I think it's really a movement-dependent phenomenon mm-hmm. uh, there, I think. So, it has so a move- vascular component, angiogenic component, um, direct stimulation from uh, increases in cytokines and growth factors in the blood that are released as a function of movement, but there's also central mediated pathways like serotonin that mediate it. So it's not a single event. And so exercise and movement can be a stimulus that promotes neurogenesis. Um, you know, and if there's also stuff circulating through the blood, what about um, just dietary components? If you just change the the composition of an animal's diet, does that have an effect on neurogenesis independent of movement and other things? Yeah, there's actually been a fair amount of work on that. Um, the trouble a little bit with that is that mechanistically it's less well known what's causing that. But one thing that has been repeated is this dietary fasting, intermittent fasting also increases neurogenesis. I'm not sure what that is about, but it might play a role in the, this discussion we had earlier about metabolic shifts. So from glycolysis, glycolytic Mm. activity and dependency on glucose for generating lactate during the glycolytic pathway versus um, sort of generating pyruvate so it can go into the TCA cycle. So these, these metabolic elements can be affected by diet and might influence whether or not it shifts. And that's a, that's a speculation on my part, but what I'm like, I'm, I'm interested in, in following up on. Yeah, no, the, the metabolic side of this is interesting. It makes sense that as a cell is, you know, changing what it is, going from one phase of its life cycle to another, it's naturally going to have different kinds of energetic requirements. And so there's going to have to be metabolic shifts there. So you mentioned when the cells are proliferating, they sort of use energy in the way that cancer cells do. And and after all, uh, cancer cells are really just, you know, very uh, fast dividing cells. And so that, that piece makes sense. Um, it sounds, you know, when people talk about neurogenesis, we tend to talk about 
you know, helping with pattern separation, memory, and these things. Is it always a good thing or are there times when neurogenesis can be a bad thing? Can some of those proliferating cells become cancer cells? You know, there's not, uh, we looked at that for a while here, seeing whether we could do that, generate um, by overexpressing cancer genes in the cells. And you can force them to do it. But spontaneously, there's not a lot of evidence for that. And even, even the gliomas that people study, um, I'm not convinced that, that the evidence supports the fact that they're derived from, from the dentate area. It's more likely uh, derived from a proliferating glial cell that then has the capacity to turn rather than really a committed neural progenitor cell. But it is, it is very interesting that, that uh, there are no neural cancers. So once a cell is committed to a neuron, you don't see neuromas coming from that. They're always coming from, if anything, very early development where the neurons are still in a proliferative state. So it is conceivable, but there's not a lot in my, my read of the literature. There's not a lot of evidence supporting the fact that that's a site where uh, neuroblastomas are, are coming from. And so when, when the cells are sort of coming out of the the niche where, where the stem cells uh, can be nourished, they have to differentiate into neurons or other cell types, and then they have to physically get somewhere, right? Like how, how are they physically moving from one spot to another and how, how far do they actually travel? Is it fairly local or can they travel long distances? It's very it's pretty local. Um, so think of it. So you had a blood vessel, I'm trying to give you an analogy here and the stem cells would be sitting right in the covet there, getting all their nutrients, maintaining, and, and also their oxygen levels are dependent upon their proximity to blood vessels. As they move away, they are less proliferative. So that that's when their proliferative niche really occurs with these nutrients and their oxygen content. When they move away, um, so they can, you know, there's, there's sort of morphological evidence suggesting that along these layers, you can, you, you'll have glial cells on the base and then you have neurons that are focusing up into what's called the molecular layer where the dendrites all receive the inputs from the cortex. And these cells can migrate along the surface of some of these cells, but the distance that they're traveling is really not very far. It's a little lateral from the, from the vasculature and they move up, you know, 15 microns to 30 microns up into the grand layer. What happens interestingly during development when there's such a thin layer of granular neurons initially is that they're born in the base and they, the ones that are born earliest, they move up and the other ones just move into the place below them. So it's, they're, they're not migrating up to the top. They're coming up from the bottom. And that's been demonstrated in a variety of different ways to show that. So they're not really moving very far. And they're, mm-hmm. they're laced all along the inner, called the inner granular zone, which is where they, they're born. But the total distance travel is not much. Although they're, they're dendrites, of course, and when they're maturing, their processes have to extend out over long distances. But that's a, and, and, and the directionality of those, um, dendrites, if you will, is really very important. Mm-hmm. The molecular mechanisms controlling that 
is well studied and it's there's wind signaling, which is really important for the non-canonical wind signaling. So the canonical wind signaling, beta catenin, et cetera, is, is, um, is involved in the proliferative state, but then it shifts over to the non-canonical and that controls the directionality of the dendrites as they migrate up into the molecular layer. I see. So you've got this population of stem cells that live near blood vessels and they're sort of essentially standing in line waiting to get right up next to the blood vessel. And the ones that are right there get all of the signals circulating in the blood that might tell them to start dividing and becoming a neuron. And then the cell body of the neuron does physically move, but not an incredible distance. But once it gets to where it's going, the the branches of the neuron do do grow outwards and upwards and in different directions to to make all of the connections that it needs to make. Yeah, just one refinement is that when they're next to the blood vessels, they are in either a quiescent or a proliferative state. They're not becoming neurons. They have to move away from the blood vessel. I see. And they shift from using WINT signaling, WINT3A, and those kinds of proliferative signals into the uh, non-canonical form of WINT, where you're WINT7 and WINT5, which uses for, and it stops the proliferative kinds of signaling at that point. I see. So they really are distinct phases. They're different. They proliferate. And then you turn into and you something. move away from the vasculature where you're getting all these proliferation signals. I see. And you move into the parenchyma where you're you're involved more in this differentiation process, and that's where this metabolic shift is kind of happening as well. Interesting. And so, um, so we've mentioned that the things that can stimulate neurogenesis, um, just novelty in general, movement, um, probably different aspects of diet, um, just you know being exposed to new sensory information that you haven't seen before learning new skills. And it sounds like, you know, it sounds like there can be a significant amount of neurogenesis in, in the sense that you could see it macroscopically. So you mentioned that you can just see that, you know, the hippocampus can grow. So this be like, um, I know there's a famous example of like the London taxicab drivers yeah. they have to memorize every road. And if you image their brains as they do that, their hippocampus literally is physically bigger in, in the imaging uh, pictures that you see. And so there's enough neurogenesis that it can lead to that level of macroscopic change. Well, the the, the concern about that study, as true as it is, is that are people that are good at memorizing things and already have a big hippocampus, mm. are they more likely to pass the test for taxi drivers or even choose that application? You need to do the study where you have a pre- that, you know, measure their hippocampus prior to even thinking about wanting to become mm-hmm. a taxi driver and then all that experience leading up to it. I'm not saying it's not causing that. It's just that particular experiment doesn't, you know, count out mm-hmm. the possibility there was a selecting for that kind of behavior because you had that capacity. Mm-hmm. But it sounds like neurogenesis is, is happening um you know, it's it's not necessarily an ultra ultra rare event, depending on the type of experience an animal is having. So, like, just to give us well, a, a okay, more... I'll give you one example. Yeah, yeah. Um, so a, a postdoc in my lab called Henriette von Prague was the one that discovered that running could increase neurogenesis. And what you do is you inject the animal with a with a, a false nucleotide called bromodeoxyuridine. And it's incorporated into the DNA of cells that are undergoing cell division. And you can stain it, it turns black. And so she 
injected the animals uh, and ran them in a running wheel and then looked at their brains later. And she didn't have to look under the microscope. You could see the black lining inside. Mm. And um, she was showing it to everybody in the lab that it was, and it was, you know, you can, you can quadruple the number of dividing cells by the, some of the experiences or the, by the running in running wheel, just running, it wasn't doing anything extraordinary, just allowing them to run, it wasn't forcing them to run. It was just allowing them to run. So that, that gets to your point that it, you know, it's not the whole hippocampus. It's not, it's not the whole dentate, but it's adequate enough to actually see it visually. Mm-hmm. And does this ever go away? So if you, if you took elderly animals, do they, does neurogenesis ever turn off or? Absolutely. Or- absolutely. And it, it can turn off um, experimentally. So if you, or I mean, in your life, if you're under severe stress, it definitely shuts down neurogenesis. So there's the cortisol link there to the proliferative event um there if you do physical restraint if you put animals into a physical restraint so they can't move around at all for a period of time that'll dampen neurogenesis dramatically so there are ways you can do this by doing the opposite of increasing uh, exploration or increasing activity you can do it down that way some people have claimed that even um, depression, anxiety, those kinds of things, but that's also linked to the lack of movement oftentimes where people are not moving around. They're just sedentary, you know, not eating right. And so it's, it's harder to link activity of neurogenesis to a cognitive state than it is to the primary uh, readout, which would be movement or, or exploration. Now to your point, it, in rodents, it clearly decreases with age to the point where, so rodents have a, let's say ro- mice have a lifespan roughly um, in in, captivi- in captivity, you know, the way we breed them, mm-hmm. about two years, 24 months. And neurogenesis peak would be around six months, maybe a little bit younger. And by nine months, you're definitely declining. And by, you know, 18 months, it's very, very little going mm-hmm. on. However, what would, that, it, what would that correspond to in a human? Is six months sort of like an adolescent and 18 is like a middle-aged person? Um, it's so hard to make that extrapolation, mm-hmm. but yes. But at, so at six think, months, think, are think they... Of, re- think of two months as a teenager. Think of... Um, Four month, four to five months is a mature adult and nine months. So, so this is the real trick. And that is that in the wild, the half, half life of a mouse is nine months. Yeah. 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 So what we're doing, we're keeping these animals alive for a much yeah. longer time. So six months is a fully mature adult, young adult mouse. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, for some people, you know, yes, that's fully mature, but then. It drops dramatically uh, over time. However, even at 12 months, 15 months, you can take a mouse out of their isolated cage, put them into a running wheel, and increase neurogenesis again. Mm. So there remain stem cells. Many of them are quiescent at this point, and partly because they're living in these little cages, you know, not experiencing a whole lot of new things, and the need for neurogenesis 
you know, is, is not, and this is really the interpretation of that, would be just like when people are, when people, older people, they're more sedentary, they may be bedridden, you know, they're not seeing a lot of, not traveling and not seeing a lot of new things. Mm-hmm. The question that faces us is, is there a real biological clock where it decreases, like many things, or is this just a function of activity? And you can maintain high levels of neurogenesis if you kept experiencing new things, kept physically active. Um, and so that, you know, that it's two, two ways of thinking about it, but experimentally testable. Mm-hmm. And you mentioned before the importance of serotonin as a, a signal involved in the process of neurogenesis generally. So um, when we think about serotonin, what are some of the drugs that tend to promote neurogenesis? You mentioned SSRIs. Um, do other serotonin- serotonergic drugs do this? Do other completely different types of drugs promote neurogenesis? Um, so... Just, just so to clarify, when we say neurogenesis, you need to break it up into its, its, its process. Mm-hmm. So there's some drugs that have an effect on proliferation. So you're increasing the pool of cells. Then there are drugs or mechanisms that drive the cell from a proliferative state into a differentiation state. Mm-hmm. So that's how it, it's best to think about it rather than saying just the drug affects neurogenesis. It really is it affecting the proliferative state or is it affecting differentiation state? And um, yeah, so there are, like I said, serotonin receptors on the neuroprogenitor cells that's involved in their proliferative state. And, you know, there are a variety of drugs that can be used to induce differentiation. The concern that you have there is, are you taking them out of cell cycle? And, driving the pool of dividing cells all into a differentiated state and you lose the pool that you're drawing from under a more natural setting. Mm. So when thinking about um, using pharmacology to induce or potentiate, quote, neurogenesis, I like to encourage people to think about what is it that you really want to do? You know, is it, do you want to increase the pool? You want to increase the available cells that can go into the circuit that can contribute to an ongoing event over the next few weeks, or are you trying to retain the pool for later, later in life? You know, it's a, or actually the, the third piece we think even more so in humans and primates is that there are a fair number of quiescent cells. And so the question is, how do we reactivate those quiescent cells to bring them back into cycle? Or, and, and, and I'm sorry to make this even more complicated, but it's it's not just differentiating the cells, but do you, you want to make sure that the cells differentiate at the right pace? Mm. Because there is this concept of neoteny where the maturation of an organ, of an individual, of anything, is is timed so that you can have the appropriate amount of experience during that maturation period. Think of it in terms of you know, your kids when they're born. You want to make sure that they have that adolescence and that childhood experience, those childhood experiences. You want to rush them all the way through to become mature adults with all the responsibilities of a mature adult when they're 11 years old. 
you want to make sure that they have that opportunity to mature. And it's the same with cells and same, certainly same with neurons. You want to make sure that they have that full ability to make all the appropriate synapses, to make all, let their dendrites get as long as they can before they become contributing members to the, to the network. Mm. So you wouldn't necessarily want to um, pharmacologically induce proliferation or, or differentiation if it wasn't also in the right context, meaning in a novel environment or, or in the context of learning something new. I think that's, I mean, this is supposition, and mm-hmm. but it, based on the accumulated data and the knowledge that that would be my approach is to think of it now in a, in a, um, in a, in aging state, I think it makes a lot of sense to pull cells out of quiescence, to activate the quiescent cells into a proliferating state. Um, and then in the context of experience, you would have them naturally mature because you've increased the pool. Then by giving them more experiences, they're being integrated by virtue of the experiences that they have. So it, it, it to me, it likely strikes me that in cases where neurogenesis is stopped due to disease, aging, anxiety, whatever the the onset is, getting the quiescent pool back in cycle, and then getting the individual to have enriched experiences makes a lot of sense. I I, I remember talking to a clinician who dealt with. Um, PTSD and, and depression. And their view of it was that they felt that the SSRIs work best if you can link them to physical exercise. So their whole mm. clinic was making sure. And so one of the interesting things about that, and again, I'm not a clinician, but it, just for my and, and there are books and papers written about this, so it's not I'm not making this up from pole cloth, is that um one type of therapy for one for after the therapy is going well is in PTSD, if you if you re-expose them in an in a safe environment to that stimulus that was evoking a a, a traumatic like event. And you, you expose them, you, you give that stimulus and they react, but it's now in a very safe environment. You do it multiple times. They'll all, they'll begin to dissociate that stimulus from the initial event and link it more to the new events that are where it's happening. Does Mm. that make sense? Yes. Yes. It made sense to me. (laughs) Yeah. So it's, yeah, it's allowing someone to, um, allowing that traumatic association to disintegrate and effectively be replaced by a new uh, association associating with a new experience, Mm -hmm. which is non-threatening. Yeah. Interesting. Non-harmful. What are some of the, are there particular serotonin receptors that are important with respect to, there are, I'm, and uh, it's five HT. I think it's one a, it may be one B, but you know, I I would have to look it up, but I, yeah, there are very specific receptors that people have been targeting. Yeah. And I know that there's been some discussion, you know, there's been quite a lot of research excitement going on with respect to psilocybin and other tryptamine psychedelics. And I believe there's some evidence out there that they promote neurogenesis in animals, but I'm not quite sure. Is that, is that true? 
I'm not enough of an expert in that. My understanding and <laughs> is that m- most of the research that's been done at a sort of morphological level shows that there's increase in plasticity of the synapse. So they, they can somehow open a plastic window. I'm not sure how mechanistically that has been really evaluated. I'll bet you somebody has done, you know, psychedelics in a rodent with BRDU labeling to see whether or not it increases neurogenesis. I just embarrassed to say, I, I don't know the literature on that. Oh, okay. Yeah, no worries. Um, what are, what would you say some of the, uh, the latest discoveries and surprises are, um, in, in the field of adult neurogenesis, broadly speaking, what, what are some of the things that we've learned recently that we didn't know, I don't know, five, 10 years ago? Yeah, I think one of the, the, um, I think people speculated that this was true, but, um, a group in Spain has now, they have this re- amazing, fast autopsy um, situation where they can get brains from people at all different ages and different disease states. And they were the first to really show that there was a decrease in um, uh, neurogenesis and Alzheimer's disease that is greater than much greater than decrease of natural aging. And then that was replicated by two other groups, one in Chicago and another one in at Columbia. So I think we had the idea was involved in aging, even in rodents, but that it's specifically elevated or decreased more in AD. And they've gone on to, to have a link to microglia. So that, that I think is a, um, there's one also, I think an interesting set of experience that we didn't know. I don't know how long this is published. There's a group in Canada that, believes that increase in their reports, strong evidence that that um, increases in neurogenesis, like with running or something like that, can increase the rate of forgetting. Mm. And so, and, and they, they talk about the importance of forgetting. You don't want to remember everything. And, but the other way of doing, of saying that, and what, what other people interpret it mean is that, it's not so much they're forgetting it, is they are generalizing about one event is similar to, but not exactly not the same. So it gives you a broader focus or a broader range of things to categorize them rather than just a very specific memory. I mean, I think for it to intuit that a little bit, think of, um, you know, you have... Yeah, here's a good example. I don't know if it's a good example. This is my best one I can come up with at the moment. So this is a clear plastic spoon, right? Mm -hmm. What's this? That is a, uh, looks like a metal spoon. Okay. If you didn't have neurogenesis, one would argue that you could you would say they're different. But really, the truth of the matter is, they're also quite similar. Mm -hmm. Functionally, they're quite similar. And one way of interpreting the importance of neurogenesis is not only can distinguish between things, 
but also helps to determine the relationship between things. Mm-hmm. And that is this pattern separation is followed by what's called pattern completion. And that occurs, we believe, in the CA3, the next mm-hmm. layer. So they're, they're separate, but they have a relationship between them. They're linked yeah. in some way. I was going to say, it, it reminds me of what you were saying earlier about pattern separation. So on the one hand, um, in order to form a general concept, say, of spoons and what spoons right. do, you have to be able to identify different, slightly different individual cases of spoons. And if you can do that well, which in neurogenesis you said was important for, that then should also aid in, in the forming of uh, just the concept or the category of spoons. That's right. That's right. That's right. What are some of the big unanswered questions? What, what are some of the things that your lab is? Well, I hadn't today? even talked about. Uh, so another one, I'll tell you another new observation. I think um, in the human field is that um, that embryonic stem cells in the brain are have a signature that's very much like the adult cells. So human, mm-hmm. but those signatures are very different in other species. Hmm. So there's something unique about that. Then it turns out that, and this is, the, I mentioned this to you before, this concept of neoteny where, it, you know, it's important to go through a time period to get lots of experience before you mature. Well, uh, an area, big area of, of investigation right now is the fact that it differs dramatically in different species and humans, it's much, much longer. So mm-hmm. it takes much longer for, and this is something I've, I've worked on in many neural systems, both in vitro and in vivo is human cells take a very long time to differentiate into fully functional cells. Like weeks, and months, months, months. Yeah. And versus weeks, in rodents and you know you can go ahead and ask your question about why (laughs) why is that important but um, i would only speculate that that period of time when they are maturing they are playing a role a special role in the function of the dentate gyrus because they're adding this hyper excitable state in there they're they're doing other things and and we're particularly interested in understanding what information are they actually contributing. I'll I'll tell you this. We we just have a paper coming out where we um, we went into it thinking, well, these young cells and they're hyper excitable. Maybe they're, they're, if you looked at them transcriptionally, at the single cells, you're measuring single cell transcriptome for all the young cells versus the mature cells. You might guess that these young cells were expressing more genes and a unique set of genes because they're contributing something more. But it turns out what we show is that they're, they're transcriptionally less active than mature cells, which is paradoxical in my mind. But then they're also pretty young, you know, so they're, they haven't developed a full repertoire. So that transcriptional profile 
is reflecting something different from the mature cells, but it's given us a hook. Say so they are different, and now we're 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 into this now, trying to find out what is a molecular these pathways that are important for understanding the cells, and and the paradigm is that you you take an animal out of a a, a home cage, individual house home cage, put them into a very a rich environment where they're seeing all sorts of things for the first time, and then you you shortly take single cells from the hippocampus and you sequence all the cells, but you first sort them for the cells that responded by expressing a gene called FOSS, the immediate early gene or others that you can use. We sort those cells out and compare them to the cells in the mature dentate that responded to the same cells, the same animal. And that's where you're seeing the cells did respond, but the, impact of the environment on the young cells is much less, despite the fact that they're excitable, whereas the mature cells have a lot more genes being expressed. Interestingly, and this is a broader issue, is if you look in the CA1, CA3, which are other areas in the hippocampus, their their expression level is really low. They're not, they're not making much of this. A lot of the information the biggest impact is on these granule neurons. Even though only a few of them are firing, the ones that are firing are are or, or are responding, are responding with massive numbers of genes. So we're very excited to try to dig into this, understand what that molecular information is that is is going on. I'm not sure how we got down that road, but <laughs> yeah, no, I was just asking about uh, exciting new stuff that's going on. Um, okay. I want to ask a more general question. So the dentate gyrus of the hippocampus, this very important region where a lot of these uh, new neurons go, what happens if that region is just damaged, generally speaking, to an animal or to a human? What what kinds of problems do they tend to have? Yeah, and actually, um, prior to the involvement of neurogenesis, so, you know, in, in, in behavior, which really started happening in the 80s, 90s, but in the 70s and earlier, people would do selective damage to the dentate gyrus. And you do see, you know, profound uh, profound differences. I'm trying to um, think of an, a test that was used in those days. I think it was a... Um, a lot of there were a lot of maze type type of tests. Let's just say that they they clearly have um, selected damage. It's hard though because this is a, a very complex structure. Think of the hippocampus is in your brain. It comes like this and it goes up here. It's about the size of my finger, and in the in the middle of it is a is a band of cells that form a U that go all the way through like this. So trying to kill or destroy that curved C-shaped structure mm. as it winds its way through there selectively has always been sort of a, a, uh, you a can't, you can't cleanly and specifically it's hurt been that very region. hard to cleanly do that. Um, and the other part is that the, the rostral and the caudal part of the structure are doing different things. The current thinking is that I, I mentioned to you that there was both an affective and a cognitive component or emotional component and sort of learning memory. And the, the more rostral portion is thought to be involved mostly in the cognitive components in the ventral, which is closer to the amygdala. 
is thought to be more involved in the affective component. So it, it's different even along its route, mm-hmm. even though it's playing the same role mm-hmm. of pattern separation. One is thought to be more than the other. But, but I, would, it, I would imagine in general, if you get some damage somewhere along that structure, they're going to have some kind of learning and memory or navigation. Oh, yeah. No, this is, this is, I'm sorry. Yeah. This is the classic case of, um, you know, hippocampal loss is where people think of, there was a, a very famous um, case in Canada uh, called HM individual. It had um, damage to uh, one temporal lobe in hippocampus and then had seizures and removed the other hippocampus. And the person had a very difficult time acquiring new information. It was sort of a very classic text. That's what the textbook description is of hippocampal damage is this inability to, to integrate new information into your, you have some past memories that you can recall, mm-hmm. but acquiring new memories is particularly disadvantaged in the absence of hippocampus bilaterally. Yeah. I think I remember that example from, from my school days. So like yeah. this person would, uh, after the procedure, they would meet someone new and then, you know, meet them again the next day and, and they wouldn't remember that they met them. The previous yes, day. That's that's exactly right. So, but that's where the whole hippocampus, mm-hmm. or or let's say major parts of the hippocampus. What's interesting is you can oftentimes there have been reports, or there have been reports of individuals with unilateral damage. They can compensate with a single single side, which is an interesting. I I don't know whether or not the clinicians have dug in deeper to that, where they can actually tease out some differences between them or not. But but it's much less with a unilateral damage compared to a bilateral damage. Mm-hmm. And you mentioned earlier, I think that, that you in experimental animals like rodents, you can just inhibit neurogenesis um, in general. When you do that, what, what kinds of deficits do you see? Yeah, this is where um, I was getting into this discussion of pattern separation where you can, they, they can make distinctions between um so let's one one of the classics is a fear conditioning test where um, the animals are given a slight shock in a um, in a, a chamber with certain features about it as, as has very distinctive features and if you put the animal back into that after twenty four hours they will freeze anticipating they're going to get shocked right a normal animal won't freeze because they when they see it the first time, they're wandering around, sniffing, smelling. But if they're put back in 24 hours to that same environment, they freeze. And if you eliminate neurogenesis, you put them back in the box 24 hours later, and they walk around the box as if they've never seen it before. So it's a they 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 don't see this environment as something that they have previously seen. So it's a <laughs> but interestingly, you can put them into a, a chamber that is slightly like this one, but different. And a healthy animal will still freeze a bit because they're they're seeing the similarity between it. Mm-hmm. But a a uh, an animal with out neurogenesis will doesn't recognize it even further without. And then if you take a put them into a chamber that is completely different, even the animal without neurogenesis can can figure that out. So it's really only looking at those events and locations and emotions that's making it slightly different. Slightly different, yeah. That's the sort of the the nuances of life, you know. 
Yeah. Yeah. So again, I mean, it's this idea of pattern separation being connected to generalization. Your ability to make fine scale distinctions also impacts your ability to uh, generalize and, and, and determine when things are part of the same category or context and, and when they're not. Absolutely. That's exactly the way I see it. So, you know, based on everything you've told us, everything you know, you know, everyone's always getting older, obviously. Um, I'm sort of, I guess, early middle age. As I go through the rest of my life, you know, what are the what are the major elements of a person's lifestyle that they can easily control that will help uh, preserve neurogenesis and and maintain it at healthy levels throughout the second half of their life? Four things. Get plenty of healthy exercise. Expose yourself to novel experiences, learn new things, travel, you know, just learn things, you know, you know, acquire new information. Um, clearly have a healthy diet. And by that, um, this means, you know, all the things that people are talking about in terms of processed food, because we know the glucose, glycogen, metabolic activities are, are key to this whole process. So, Metabolics is big and you can impact metabolics by diet, by, by not dieting necessarily, but by eating appropriate foods. And the first is, uh, to live in a social and low stress. Try to keep your anxiety levels down. Try to keep your stress levels down. Avoid places where it's going to make you tremendously stressful. On the other hand, you know, a, a, a good amount of, you know, excitement and, and, and challenges are important, but not to the point where it's, mm-hmm causing the release of corticosterone and other cortisol levels rise in your blood. You want to keep away from those kinds of things. I would imagine I I almost see an analogy with like, you know, you said intermittent fasting can help on the diet side. It's almost like novelty in some sense is almost like uh, intermittent as opposed to chronic stress. Yeah. You know, there's good stress and there's bad stress. Stress is a continuum too. That's what I was trying to say. Exactly right. Is it this low level excitatory, Activity, novelties, you know, learning a new thing, the frustration of, you know, learning a new language and you know, the early stages are, are tough, but staying with it and acquiring it and it builds up. Um, and then it, it, there's sort of growing evidence that uh, socialization is a key feature as well. So, you know, social isolation is, has been evidenced to show decrease in neurogenesis as well. So highly social, low stress environments are part of it. So that may be five. If I separate out um, sort of anxiety from the social environment, but I, I sometimes link those sort of things together. Interesting. Um, well, Professor Rusty Gage, this is fascinating stuff. Thank you for taking the time. Is there anything else you want to say or maybe reiterate based on anything that we discussed today? Um, I don't think. I think not. I think that was you know was good. I hope I hope it was uh, understandable and recognized that many of the things that I said were my opinions or my interpretations of the data, and um, and there's lots more to, to discover. Um, so it's it's great area for young people to to get into because um, it's thought provoking and yet there's really good underlying molecular mechanisms and circuitry questions for for neuroscientists. It's a rich rich area. In an, in an area of importance for uh, cognitive cl- decline as well. 
All right. Professor Rusty Gage, thank you for your time. Great. Thank you very much. Have a great day. This episode is supported in part by Athletic Greens. Their main product, AG1, is a comprehensive and convenient daily nutrition product containing 75 vitamins, minerals, and whole food sourced ingredients with less than one gram of sugar per serving, no nasty chemicals or artificial anything. It's gluten and dairy free and compatible with paleo, vegan, vegetarian, and ketogenic diets. AG1 is a quick and convenient way to supplement your diet to help ensure your body is getting the nutrients it needs. It comes in powder form and you can mix it in water and drink it, or you can put it into a smoothie or a shake or something like that. I mix it into water and drink it with the first meal of each day, and it's super convenient. If you go to athleticgreens.com slash mindandmatter, Athletic Greens will give you a free one-year supply of vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. Their vitamin D product comes in tincture form, so you just take one drop each day. A large fraction of the population is actually vitamin D deficient, especially in winter months when we get less sun exposure, and vitamin D is super important for the proper function of the immune system and for a variety of other things. And there's even evidence indicating that vitamin D deficiency is correlated with more severe cases of COVID-19 in those who get infected. Every time I go into the doctor each year for a checkup, I'm always told that vitamin D deficiency is very common and I should be supplementing on a daily basis. So visit athleticgreens.com slash mindedmatter or click the link in the episode description. You'll get a free one-year supply of vitamin D with your first purchase.